Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, everyone. Um, good morning to Battersea. Good morning online. Um, our friends at Westside are having their own messy church this morning, so they're not with us at the moment, but let's see if we can make our own churches messy. Um, <laughs> my name is Phil, and it's a privilege as ever to continue our worship this morning through the word. Now, um, I would just to say I've had the ongoing cold flu that's going around for the last... Uh, someone's nodding, I'm like, they can tell. Um, for the last couple of days, so if I sniff more than I normally do, then do uh, forgive me. Um, but hopefully it'll all be okay, and do, do pray for me that I have clarity to, to speak. But every time um, I stand up and, and preach, I'm transported sometimes back... Uh, to the school I went to, and the school I went to was very, very big on, on, on um, it was big on grammar, actually, it was a grammar school, but it was very big on rules and, like, kind of discipline, and one of the things that every single time um, someone walked into the room in front of a class and said, you know, good morning, class, everyone very clearly in unison have to respond and say, good morning, you know, uh, the, the, the person who, who just entered the room. And sometimes whenever I stand up and say good morning, there's a, there's a muted response. Uh, it's always a bit disappointing, and I go back and, and wish we had it like in my school. So I wondered this morning if we could try that. And I'm speaking to you in Battersea. I know you can't, uh, I can't see you, but I can feel you. So I want you to do it as well. So I'm going to try it again and, and see if we can get a bit, more, a bit more of that going. So I'm going to say good morning, Vineyard 61. There we go. See how much nicer that feels for me primarily? <laughs> and that, my friends, is an example of power, which is what we're talking about this morning. Um, and this is our final teaching, as Julia mentioned, in the seven-week series on counterfeit gods. These are the hopes, desires, experiences in our lives, people and objects that we very easily elevate above the role of gifts, and into the role of gods in our lives. And as we start this teaching this morning, I want to take us back to a quote Pastor Mike shared with us at the start of the series, um, which he said, uh, we shared this quote saying, the heart is an idol factory. The heart is an idol factory. It's a very powerful quote, and as I pondered it, as I was preparing this message, I wanted to put into my own words in terms of what I have been thinking through from this series, and I put it slightly differently, a little like this. Something about the human experience makes us take things that are good and make them gods. Something about the human experience makes us take things that are good and make them gods. And I'm just going to start this morning by giving us a chance to pause. It's been a long preaching series, the longest we've done this year. And do you know why? It's because the tightest knots take the longest to unravel, and the deepest roots take the longest to remove. So I'm just going to give us all a minute, whether we're at home, at Battersea or at Balham, or listening on the podcast, 
just to take a pause and think back over this series. Here are some questions you might want to briefly consider. What was it like hearing the different teachings? What discussions in life groups have you had or with other people around the church? What might have God been wanting to say to you in the last seven weeks? Amen. So let's stay hopefully in that place of receptivity and awareness of God's presence with us this morning as we take a close look and close the series at the final counterfeit God we're going to look at, the final idol, which is power. And let's start by listening to these words of a poem by William Ernest Henley written in 1875. Some of you may recognize the words. It will come up on the screen. At the end of this poem, he writes, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. Let's find a part of the poem called Invictus. Those last lines are very famous in parts of the world. Some of you may know why. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And I wanted to share those words because here what we have, I think, is a cultural diagnosis of where many of us are. Because I think most of us feel, hear those words and we feel inspired. They are the spirit of our culture to feel in control, to feel empowered, to feel we can overcome the difficulties and challenges we face through our own resilience, our own strength, and our own sense of power. To be the one who makes the decisions in our lives and where our lives are going. Ultimately, to have and hold power and control of our futures. And perhaps, listening to those and listening to me, we don't immediately even see the problem with that. They're good, right? That's how society moves on and operates. And certainly some of that is good, and certainly in many circumstances. And as we'll see in a moment, power in itself is not bad. Indeed, it is a gift given to us. But let us apply one of the idle detection tests that Mike shared with us in the very first teaching of this series. What are the things or experiences of life that flood us with anxiety? What situations give us nightmares and keep us up at night? I wonder if anyone here sometimes feel paralyzed with the extreme uncertainty of the future. Does anyone here find not being in control difficult? Does anyone respond to these by trying to grab, grasp, and regain that sense of power and control? Anyone struggle with that? I know I do. Terribly so. And there's nothing wrong with being afraid and concerned for our lives and our families. This is often a God-given desire from love. We're living in economic times of uncertainty for many, and anxiety is an understandable and human response. But at the same time as we've seen in this series, power and control become an idol when they begin to control us. When our lives and choices become so focused on keeping power and control or trying to do so. So what does the Bible 
have to say all about this. What does our Lord say? Well, as usual, if we know what we're looking for, the Bible names this tension right at the very start of the narrative of the story we live in. In the third chapter of Genesis, which is the first book of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, God, after God creates humanity, he gives them authority to rule over creation and under him. He gave us power. Power is a gift we are all given. And yet our contentment with that power lasts, all oh, about eight seconds. Along comes the devil and speaks to Adam and Eve about the limits that God placed on them, limits in the form of a tree of knowledge of good and evil that they are told do not eat from. And the devil says to them, for God knows, this is why he said that, the devil says to them, he knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And now the opening pages of the Bible in Genesis are deep and complex writings. But all I want to point out and offer to you this morning is that one part of what's happening there is that Satan is tempting humanity with choosing power over God. He's saying, don't just take the role God's given to you. Don't just take the power God has given to you over creation but under him. You can have more. You can be like God. And we know that Adam and Eve, so often like us, give in. They want the power. We want the power. And this is just the first biblical reference to this notion. Throughout the rest of the biblical narrative, starting with Abraham, God seeks to restore a new balance with humankind through covenant with the nation of Israel. Yet throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, we see Israel repeatedly choosing their own way, choosing their own power with terrible consequences for them and those around them. Friends, this idolatry of power, it's not a small thing. It's not something that affects just some of us. And I'm going to be bold enough to say some of the idols we've talked about in this series actually might be symptoms of this idolatry of control and power. This is the happy sermon. <laughs> so is all hope lost? Far from it. Because the next part of the biblical story is a renewed promise of God through the prophets of a person, a king, a son of man who would come and somehow end this cycle of human failure and restore the kingdom of God on earth as it was intended. So who is this son of man, I hear you ask? Who is this human life who faced this idol of power head on, rejected it and overcame it? I'll keep you in tension, but let's read about him now. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them with me if you like, or, or get out your, or your phones if you're, I won't finish that sentence, um, to Philippians chapter 2, it's in the New Testament, you can find it under the part that says Philippians at the top of the page, and we are going to read verses 5 through 11, it's written by Paul to the church in Philippi. And he says to them this, In your relationships with one another, have the mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Sounds very clear, very logical, yes? Well, no, actually, it's not in any way logical. It's a poem. Um, and it's a pretty amazingly poem, uh, amazingly designed poem, which I'm going to show you in a moment. And what Paul is actually doing here, as far as we understand, he's inserting a poem maybe of his own writing, or potentially a poem or a hymn that was known to the church and the Christians in Philippi at the time. So let's do a brief jaunt to an English language poetry class um, and see what's happening here. Just, just so you know, I, I nearly failed my English language, so this could go badly. Um, and the less said about that, the better. But I'll do my best. Uh, and let's look at, read that through again bit by bit and let me show you what's happening here. So just to make it easy, I've renamed this for us called the Philip Poem. <laughs> so um, it's actually very good. It sticks in the memory. So this is the Philip Poem. So the first part we have here, it starts you know, visually there on the screen I've got in the top left. Um, this is about obviously Jesus, who being in very nature God. So the poem starts with this first thing of who Jesus is you know, at this point in time. And the second part, if it moves down and says how he responded to that, and he responded by not taking hold of that power and identity and authority that he had. And then it comes down at the next stage, um, and it says, so much so that he found himself in human likeness, humbling himself from the state of God to the place of being a human, and even down to death on a cross. And what you can see here in the first movement of the Philip poem is a very <laughs> a clear line downwards. You've got a descending, a Jesus' voluntary movement down all the way to death as crucifixion on the cross, the worst way to die in the time that he lived. And then we look at the second part of the poem. So what happens here? Next we read, as we read it a moment ago, therefore God exalted him um, to the highest place. So you can see now God is responding to Jesus' choice on the left there by reversing what Jesus has done and moving him back up. And then we finish again the poem in the top right, so actually what happens at the end, that Jesus is now the name above all names that every knee will bow to. And Jesus is restored back to the position he held in the first place. And you can see the polar opposite, the mirror image of that diagram moving back up. So this is what's happening in the Philip poem. This is a stunningly designed poem which would have been known from the people at the time. This is not just a logical statement of facts, even though there are many facts and truths in there. This is a wonderful piece of poetry that Paul is using to teach them and remind them something that they know about how Jesus acted and how they can do likewise. It's an incredible poem, a piece of art. And let's just pause very, very briefly on that. All of you out there who are artists, you are biblical. What you are doing is what exactly Paul is doing in the scriptures. He's making an incredible statement about Jesus' use of power. Not only did he resist the temptation to keep his power for his own advantage, but he actively gave it up for the sake of what he loved, 
you, me, and the entire world. So let's come out of um, uh, per English poetry class and I move briefly now to show you one other thing about this passage into history class. Um, Paul is writing this to a group of Christians in the place called Philippi. And Philippi was a Roman colony, um, meaning it is a place that had been taken over by the Romans, so a lot of Romans were living there. So it's heavily influenced by Roman culture and norms. And the Roman culture, not that dissimilar to ours, but maybe even more so, was extremely hierarchical. There were some very clear levels of where you sat in society. Very based on class, status, wealth, and power. And the ladder looked a little like this on the screen. So right at the top there, you've got the Senate, uh, the most powerful people they call the shots. Next one, the equestrians, uh, their wealth meant their own horses, which is where that word comes from. Then you've got the decurions and the Roman citizens. Um, some of you may know in, in Paul's story, he was a Roman citizen, which is why he had certain rights, because he sat here on the hierarchy. Then you have the free men and women, and right at the bottom you have the slaves and the servants. And just very, very one small thing, and this is the beauty of Scripture, when we know what we're looking for, we see things we'd never see otherwise. Um, let me show you what Paul opens this letter with in Philippians 1 verse 1. He says, writing with himself and his co-mission um, partner at the time, Timothy, he defines himself and themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. Again, what we wouldn't know is this is the only biblical letter where Paul opens by calling himself a servant to churches. Every other time he calls himself an apostle. And this time, I think he's calling himself a servant because he's making this point into this Roman culture that this is what I am doing. I'm following this pattern of Jesus as I call you to do it as well. He's voluntarily putting himself at the bottom of that rung for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom. So Paul is writing to a church beset by what we are talking about today, the temptation, the idolatry of power. A culture imbued with the affirmation that, of course, climbing the ladder, of course, taking more power is what you do. And he says to them, no, 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 do not be like that. Be like our God. Be like Christ. See how he handles power. Of course, a Philippoem is only one way that we see the early church witness to Jesus' use of power. We see it even more directly in Jesus' own words. The night before Jesus died, before he was crucified, as that poem reminded us and the Philippians of, Jesus sought out his father in prayer, pleading for a different way out of being crucified the next day because he knew what it would cost him to suffer like that. But it's recorded as ultimately his attitude came down to six simple words. Yeah, not my will, but yours. Yeah, not my will, but yours. And I think this is another version of the question we've been asking throughout this seven-week series. Who is on the throne? This question is whose will is foremost in our lives? Is it his or is it ours? Um, Gerald May, a Christian psychiatrist, yes, I'm quoting a psychiatrist, you're welcome. 
In his book, Will and Spirit, which is about the overlap of psychiatry and spirituality, he said you a lot about the kind of stuff that I read, he says this about this very issue. He says, we have been taught very well that meaning and purpose can be achieved only through personal mastery and self-determination. Fundamentally, this dilemma has to do with whether we engage with the deepest levels of our lives in willing or willful ways. These two reflect the underlying attitude one has towards life itself. Willingness notices the wonder of life and bows in some kind of reverence to it. Whereas willfulness sets one apart. Attempt to master, direct, control, and manipulate our own existence. Describing the very same fundamental choice at the deepest heart of the Christian life in discipleship, Janet Haderberg and Robert Gulick describe a critical step in our growth as Christians and disciples and call it the wall, which is as fun as it sounds. And they write this. They say the wall represents our will meeting God's will face to face. We decide at the wall a new whether we're going to willingly surrender to God and let God direct our lives, they say it has to do with the slow breaking down of the barriers we have built between our will and a new awareness of God in our lives. I don't want to share these big ideas as we finish this series, not because they are simple to grasp, I read some of this stuff a couple of years ago, and I'm still, you know, in a healthy way, really trying to make sense of what they mean for my life. So I don't share them as simple, easy, simple ideas, but to be honest with you, to raise the stakes. To invite us all to see this scale of the mountain we face, culturally, personally, in laying down all our idols, including the idols of power and control. Because what we're talking about here is not a simple change in one or two behaviors in our lives. It's not just simply picking, identifying an idol and removing it. It is a fundamental shift in the core of how we respond and react to what we go through in life. If I can put it as bluntly as I think it is, it's the difference between trying to ask Jesus to help us bring about our own will or genuinely trying to be used by Jesus for his. The difference between trying to ask Jesus to bring about our own will in our lives, or genuinely trying to be used to bring about his. Who knew a seven-week series on consecration would be so fun? So, friends, let's wrap up <laughs> this series. Throughout this series, we have been asking this question, who is on your throne? Is it your children or your dream of children? Is it your marriage or your dream of a marriage? Is it your financial comfort or your dream of financial comfort? Is it your sense of power or your will or your desire for power and will? And all of these are incredibly helpful to help us identify specific idols we have maybe fallen prey to. But underneath all of them, at the heart of, of consecration, 
or bringing ourselves fully before God is, I think, a simpler question about the throne. Is it you or is it God? And if you're sitting here or listening at Balaam, at Battersea online, catching up on the podcast, if you're standing or knowing it's not you, as I'm standing here knowing God is certainly not on my throne in the way that he deserves to be, then there is one final piece of the poem that we need to know. This poem, hopefully back on the screen, is not only a model for us to follow as disciples of Jesus, but it's a testimony of the grace that allows us to be a disciple in the first place. You see, Jesus, it talks about Jesus got off his throne, gave away his power, his comfort, his life, to forgive us and remove the consequences of our refusal to do so. God's kingdom on earth, a kingdom we were meant to be overseeing with him, got ruined when we all chose power over God, chose our will over his. But Jesus' life, death and resurrection has restored that kingdom by grace and by love. And here's the result of that. We are now able to get back to our original role as power-holding kingdom builders if we want to. But we don't do that by repeating the errors of the past. You know, as Julius said this morning, we don't do that just by coming in and coming to meetings, although we love meeting as Christians. If I could be also very bold, we don't simply do that by singing songs, although singing songs and worship is so important. We do that by intentionally replacing the willful pursuit of our own plans with a willingness to submit to God's. In both the joy and the clarity of the kingdom now and the pain and the silence of the kingdom not yet. So I'm going to invite back the leaders and the musicians in Battersea and here at Balaam as we continue our worship together. But as we do so, I want to offer you a different version of that Invictus poem that might guide our response as we close this series. I wrote it as my own confession from this series. And if you'd like to, I'll, I'll welcome you, if you're able or want to, to stand as I read this closing words. I've entitled this poem instead, Christus Victor, which is Latin for the victory of Christ. Again, as Judy was saying, the names of God. And this is my personal prayer that I will invite you into if you would like. In each trial, in what I go through, my sin and culture insist. I give worship to the idol of power, and allegiance to my will persists. Yet despite the effort I give as I try to make my life clear, the uncertainty of tomorrow can leave me paralyzed in fear. In these times I call to mind bringing hope and the truth to console, 
Jesus, you are the saviour of my fate. And you are the captain of my soul. And so I seek, fueled only by grace, to remove my heart from your throne and working with those around me, seek your kingdom and your righteousness alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.